So for the past six weeks, uh, we've been reading through this New Testament letter to the Ephesians. Uh, for those of you that uh, maybe you haven't been here, um, Ephesians was written nearly 2,000 years ago to the church, to Christians in particular, uh, living in a Roman city called Ephesus. It's now in modern-day Turkey. That was written by a man named Paul, uh, who just had this really profound, reality-altering experience. And that experience gave him new eyes and a new understanding of his faith. Um, he'll tell that story of that experience three different times in the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's his testimony. And he tells it three different times because it's the moment he met the resurrected Jesus face-to-face on a road to a town called Damascus. And from that moment on, his life was forever changed. And I would argue, second only to Christ's death and resurrection, the world was forever changed by that experience. So we've been reading through this letter together to try to understand two things. Um, We're trying to understand what God had to say through Paul to the church back then, and what God has to say through them to us today, to the church today. And that's kind of a strange way to say that, I know, but it's actually really important because that reminds us that this letter was originally written to a particular people in a particular city at a particular time in history. This letter was written to them. And one thing that Christians are are often guilty of doing is we try to fit language that's thousands of years old from two other languages, actually. And we try to just directly fit it into our modern situation, and that's just not how it works. Like, our world is radically different from the world that Paul lived in, but our Savior is the same. And the calling that he's given to each of us is the same. So the challenge that we have when we read these letters, it's to understand how to apply Scripture that was written in one context like so very different from ours, and how we apply it to our current context. But as we do it, we're remaining faithful to Jesus' call to love and obey God, to love others, to follow and to make followers of him. So it's just important to remember the New Testament letters were not written to us, but they are for us. Does that make sense? Like they are a gift for us. Our job is to put the words into their original context first, and then we apply them to our context today. So what's really interesting about the letter Ephesians itself is the way it's constructed. Like it's clearly broken into two parts right down the middle. There's six chapters total. The first three chapters, all they do is proclaim the gospel. Paul just lays out the good news that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near to us. And that now the kingdom is to be active and revealed through the body of Christ on earth, which is his church. And he uses those three chapters to remind us that those of us who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, that you are being made new. He calls us a new humanity. That we are people who are being fundamentally transformed from the inside out. You got that? In chapters four through six? He says it's time to act like it. Like, Paul is about to make things really uncomfortable. And I'm sorry for VBS Sunday, this is a difficult place to start, but this is just where we are, all right? So Paul's about to make things really uncomfortable. He's about to get really personal. Like, for the next three chapters, he has a lot to say about a lot of things. About anger, 
about sex, about marriage and parenting, about the way employers treat their employees, about our work ethic, about money, about truth-telling, about kindness. Y'all, I could go on and on and on. And as Paul goes on and on and on over the next three chapters, you may be inclined to hear the voice of like, I don't know, like an overbearing parent, right? Like somebody who's just a little too much into your business. <laughs> like it might sound like he's mandating specific behavior and you have to do these things in order to please God. I just want to encourage you not to hear it that way. That is not what he intends. That's not what he's doing. In chapters four through six, Paul is just telling us that every aspect of this life must be lived in light of the gospel. It must be put in the context of the gospel he proclaimed in the first three chapters. He's saying that there is no neutral response to Jesus. And there is no such thing as partial acceptance of Jesus. You're either being transformed into his image or you're not. You're either being obedient to Jesus or you're not. But the truth is, as somebody who by my nature, I don't really like the word obedience, right? That's I'm not inclined to want to obey things. But the truth is, we're all obeying something. We are all being transformed by something. Paul is just saying those who are being transformed by Christ, those obedient to Christ, you're going to look a particular way. So he's just asking us a couple questions. He wants us to ask ourselves a couple questions. In light of who Jesus is and in light of what he's done, who are you? How do you do the things you do each and every day? How does your faith in Jesus inform and influence everything you do everywhere you go? Does that make sense? All right, so let's read the first few verses of chapter four. We'll talk about this a bit. Uh, this is... Ephesians 4, I'm going to start reading verse 1 through 7. This is from the New Living Translation. Uh, Paul writes, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. So two main issues we're going to talk about today. There's a lot here, but two main things that we want to talk about. Unity and transformation. But specifically the idea that we are called to grow up together. So uh, there's a saying by a, a Lutheran theologian. Um, his name is Rupert Maldinius. He says this. He says, in essentials, unity... In non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. This is a very, very important phrase. In essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The question is, what are essentials? You might not be surprised to know that the church has fought about what the essentials are. <laughs> We're pretty good at fight, finding things to fight about. Um, in our tradition, uh, we, we have a way of identifying them. 
We recite the Apostles' Creed regularly in worship. This is a creed given by some of the first apostles of Jesus a couple hundred years after Jesus' resurrection. And the Apostles' Creed simply answers what is essential. So Christians, what is it that you believe? Let's say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, in the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Later on this year, we're going to talk about this specifically over a few weeks. So we'll talk about what it means when we said he descended into hell, and we'll talk about what it means when we say the, the Holy Catholic Church, all right? So it uh, doesn't mean what many people think it means, uh, but we'll talk about that later on this year. So in order to be a part of the body of Christ, everything we just said, those are the non-negotiables. Like those are the essentials. In essentials, unity. If it's part of the Apostles' Creed, it's an essential. If it's not, then it's not. So I want you to think about all the things that we allow to divide us. Like in the church, yes, but also in the culture. Like in the culture, we divide ourselves by race and by politics and money, by what we do, by where we live, by what we drive, by our style, our interests. We have come up with as many ways to divide ourselves from one another as there are people in the world, right? But we do the same thing in the church. Do you go to the service with the band or with the choir? Do you take communion every week or do you just take it a couple times a year? Do you read the NIV, the King James, or the message? Do you baptize babies? Do you shout out and worship like my Pentecostal sister that I was talking about earlier? Or do you sit quietly like y'all, mostly? (laughs) Did God create everything in seven literal days or did he do it over billions of years? Y'all, I could do this all day. As many possible divisions among us as there are verses in scripture. Now listen, I think the differences are good. Right, the differences are good because none of us have the whole answer. The differences are good. Keeps things spicy. (laughs) It makes the church interesting. The problem is when we turn them into divisions. When they divide us from brothers and sisters in Christ from each other. That is not good. If the church is going to be the place where the kingdom of God is active and being revealed, then it must be defined by an unbreakable unity while at the same time it's filled with great diversity. And I want you to remember this phrase. Ephesians is going to tell us over and over, we are called to be united, not uniform. Do you hear the difference? Like we are called to be united together, but not the same. 
And I think one of the reasons that the churches today don't always look a lot like the kingdom that God promised is because we're not united. We'd rather be uniform. We'd rather be around people like us. We'd rather be around people who think and act like we do. An essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity or love. Back to verse 2 and 3. It says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Husband and wives, parents and kids, family relationships, church relationships. When you're struggling, when you're at odds, go back there. Go to Ephesians 4 verses 2 and 3 and meditate on that. Read it and pray that God would give you the courage and the strength to put it into practice, even in really difficult situations. But I'll be the first to admit, I don't always do it in my marriage. I don't always do it in my parenting. And we don't always do it as a church. Those verses are not always an accurate picture of the church. This gift that Jesus left for the world. The place where the kingdom of God is meant to be on display for the world to see so that they could see there is just another way. And that it's a better way. So why? What, why is it that I don't live this out? That churches don't always live this out? And I think it's just because we refuse to grow up. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean it literally. Like we refuse to grow up. We refuse to mature in the faith. Like remember what I said earlier in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is reminding us that we are being made new. That in Christ, we're different than we were. We're a new humanity fundamentally being transformed. And in chapters four through six, he says, all right, it's time to act like it. So to help us do it, he gave us some gifts. This is verse 11 uh, through 13. He continues to write. He says, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. You see, Paul says that these gifts in the church are needed and they will continue. That people like me and Sabrina and Roland and Mark and many of you and thousands around the world are here and trained and equipped to preach and teach the gospel in the church and in the world. And the fact that that is still needed means that we haven't yet reached the goal. So what's the goal? The next verse, it tells us, verse 14 then we will no longer be immature like children. And he describes what that looks like. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. We will not be influenced We will not be influenced by anything other than who? Jesus. I'm not saying this to disparage any individual. But y'all, in a culture 
where we have literally raised up influencers, we need to be wise. We need to be a little critical of the voices that are speaking into our lives. If we are in Christ, it is time to live like it. It's time to walk the talk. It's time to grow up. It's time to let the voice of our Savior be the voice that guides us, that dictates the way we think, what we say, how we live, how we work, how we play in the world. Not the voices of some politician or news anchor or philosopher or cultural influencer. There's this phrase that we use when we talk about becoming a follower of Jesus. It's actually a phrase that many people use about us. This phrase, being born again, right? Like, I am a born again Christian. And that phrase actually comes from John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking with a man named Nicodemus. He was a really wise, educated, important leader within his faith. And it says this. It says that after dark one evening, Nicodemus came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. So what does Nicodemus think Jesus is? Like, just, just another teacher, or maybe a prophet, like just another influencer, right? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said what? What do you think? Huh? <laughs> like, what? What do you mean? He says, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus replied, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Now, I want you to think about that image, not as a catchphrase. It is not meant to be just another divisive label, another way of designating who we are and who we're not. Born again is actually the perfect description of what it means to come to faith in Jesus and live life with Jesus. Like when we have an encounter with Jesus, like the one that Paul had that fundamentally transformed his life, our old self is gone and a new person is being formed. He'll say the same thing in another letter uh, in 2 Corinthians. He says, anybody in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. We start out as babies, right? We don't come into this as fully developed, mature adults. We are born again. We start out as babies, as toddlers, pretty helpless on our own. We're unlearning everything we knew and we're beginning to understand reality from a completely new perspective, from God's perspective. And that means we have to relearn it all. Walking and eating and speaking and working. Every part of us is being made new and that impacts every part of our lives. So look, it's understandable that at first, like when somebody first comes to Christ, like we're gonna stumble around a little bit. We're gonna say some stupid things. And we're going to have trouble understanding, like, how does my salvation, how does that get integrated? How does it influence my marriage and my parenting, my social relationships, what I do in my work? It takes time. But we must grow up. 
Like parents, we, we tolerate certain behaviors from our kids, right? Depending on how old they are. Uh, whatever's appropriate for their age, their developmental stage. And you might try to correct and calm the situation, but like if you had a young kid or a toddler who's throwing a fit in a store because you didn't buy them candy or a toy, like you understand that, right? Maybe the people around you don't understand it always, but you understand it. They're learning. But you don't tolerate that from your teenager. I hope. And we don't tolerate it from adults. I don't know, maybe in our culture we do a little bit. But that's stupid, right? Watch this. Like, you may not have been able to hear what they were saying, but it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> like, you know, we've, we've seen this. It's silly. Like, how many shows and movies are based on that premise, right? Adults acting like children. There's an entire show called Arrested Development based on that premise. Like, the problem is, for many Christians, like, we accept salvation in Jesus. But we just don't want to grow up. We don't want to leave the old life behind. And it is a form of spiritual arrested development. Like the word discipleship, being and making disciples of Jesus, it's just a way of saying growing up with the person of Jesus as the model of who we will become. Become mature over time and then help others mature in Christ as well. That's what we're called to do. There's an article by this brilliant theologian and philosopher. His name is Dallas Willard. Um, And I've mentioned some of this before, but I want to read you this excerpt from it. He says, There's absolutely nothing in what Jesus himself or his early followers taught that would even suggest 
that you can decide to enjoy forgiveness at Jesus' expense and then have nothing more to do with them. He says a heresy has come into being throughout the evangelical world. And this heresy has created the impression that it's reasonable to be a vampire Christian. One, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or to have your character. In fact, why don't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven. He says, but can we even imagine that that is in any way acceptable to Jesus himself? He goes on, he says, when you stop to think about it, how could you actually trust him for forgiveness of your sins and not trust him for more than that? He says, you can't trust him at all without believing that he was right about everything and that he alone has the key to every aspect of our lives here on earth. And if you believe that, then you will naturally want to stay as close to him as you can in every aspect of your life. Now, we're going to post an article on the website. We'll post this article on the website and on our podcast. I'd really encourage you to read the whole thing sometime this week. And I will tell you, this matters to Jesus not just so that we live lives and can finally be pleasing to God. It matters because God is our Father and we are his beloved children. And as parents, those of you who are parents, any of you who love anyone dearly who's younger than you, do you not want to protect them from things that are going to hurt them? Like, do you not want to put walls around them to make sure that the things that will lead them astray and lead to their destruction can't speak into their lives? This matters to God for the same reason. You are his child. And he loves you so dearly that he wants to protect you from all the voices in the world that are trying to lead you away from him. He gives you the promise of salvation, the hope of life to come with him forever. But then he gives us a way to live this life now. A way to start living the life of Christ even now. Some of you know, I, I spent, I've been gone for a while. I spent the last two weeks um, in a, a residency in Boston, uh, starting a doctor of ministry degree. Um, and I want to read you a short description of this program. Um, the, the track that I'm working on, the title of it is Workplace Theology and Ethical Leadership. Okay, so I want to read you this description. And I promise this is going somewhere. Um, it says, this program looks at the biblical, theological, and pastoral implications of life in the marketplace, including the quest for purpose and meaning in our work, the impact of technological innovation on our faith, the ethics of financial management, and sustainable stewardship of God's creation. This cohort will consider the intersections of faith and work. We'll explore what it means to be created in the image of a God who is always at work and the relationship for us between work, wealth, and human flourishing. Okay, so this program is unique. Like it's considered to be on the cutting edge of theological studies. It's one of the first of its kind. And I'm not telling you that to boast. That has nothing to do with me. I'm telling you this because it brings up a really important question. How is it that 2,000 years 
after the death and resurrection of Jesus? How is it that there is just now a doctoral program trying to understand how pastors can help churchgoers integrate their faith and their life? How is it that just now we're seriously studying how to help people figure out how their faith in Christ integrates with their relationships, with their money, with the culture around them, with their work, with the gifts and talents that God has given them? Why is this cutting edge? Why is this one of a kind? Why has it taken 2,000 years for us to really begin to study this? And I think it's because in recent years, we just haven't been taking discipleship very seriously. Like we, maybe we've been going to church, but we haven't been seriously reflecting on the ways that our faith in Jesus must be integrated in every part of our lives. And y'all, it's time for that to change. It's time to grow up. And I'm not just talking about sharing our faith with our coworkers, talking about Jesus with our neighbors. I'm talking about the ways in which the way of Jesus informs how we do everything we do, wherever we are. And Paul's message for the church today, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, the church like you are a people who have been united together in Christ with all the diversity and difference among you. And we are being fundamentally transformed into his image and that growing up is happening together. So it's time for us to act like it. It's time for us to live it so that the world can see the church in a different way, in a way that might lead them to the foot of the cross. Amen? I'm going to close by just reading the very first verse that we read today already. Uh, Paul says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. As he is writing this letter, where is Paul living out his calling? Where is he? Come on, Pentecostals, say it. (laughs) He's in prison. Because of his faithfulness, because he lived this transformed life, not only in the church, not only among Christians, but in the public square, in his job as a tent maker, even when he was in prison, because of his faithfulness, Christian faith spread from Jerusalem to Turkey through the Roman Empire all the way around the world and into the hearts of over billions of people for the past 2,000 years. Now listen, maybe you haven't had that experience. Like that experience of meeting the resurrected Christ, finding salvation and finding hope in him. Maybe you haven't had that experience yet. If not, I'm so glad you're here (laughs) because I have really good news. Like, I have it on the highest authority that he is really looking forward to meeting you. (laughs) And that we are here to help make that connection. But for those of you who have, like for those of you who profess faith in Christ, who will call yourself a Christian, where and how are you called to live out that redeemed, transformed life?
Where and how are you supposed to be a reflection of the image of God? When does God intend to speak and work through you to make peace and to give people hope? And to whom are you called to give the good news? Using words if you have to. Where, how, when, and to whom? Everywhere. Always. To everyone. And do it just like Jesus did. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful. Um, Okay, first, Father, this is hard. (laughs) This is challenging. It's difficult. But I am so grateful that our faith is not just some philosophy. It's not just some ideas. It's not just one way to live and move in the world. It recognizes that this world is broken. That this life is difficult. But that you have done what needs to be done to fix it, to remake it, to make it new, and to bring us home. So God, I pray that for your church that you would remind us, make it clear to us, that you have given us every tool we need to live in the world as if that's true. To live in the world as if you are repairing broken things. That at work, when we see unethical activity, that we don't just feel like we have no other choice, but we will wrestle, that we will hit our knees in prayer, that we will turn to scripture to find a way through those ethical challenges so that we can represent you, not just by what we say, but by how we do our jobs. That as we parent, that as we live in relationship with each other, that we would trust you to guide us in those parts of our lives as well. That we would have the faith that your way is better and that you've actually given us the tools we need to live it. So guide us, lead us, teach us. Continue to call us to you until the day that you bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.